A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome, everyone, to a Thoughtful Faith podcast. This is your guest host, Dan Weatherspoon. I am normally the host of Mormon Matters podcast and continuing to do that. But every once in a while, I'll be taking a turn to interview good friends of mine and interesting Latter-day Saints who have found a way to make the gospel work in their lives with both their head fully engaged as well as their heart and they're modeling something good and exciting for us. Thrilled to have my good, good friend Boyd J. Peterson. I'm throwing the J in there in case he wants to be a general authority someday, and we'll, we'll start getting used to it. Even though his middle initial, it isn't just his middle initial we're talking about, it's J-A-Y. Boyd is known to, I think, many people here. I've certainly had him on my podcast a few times, but he is an adjunct professor at both Utah Valley University, teaches a few classes over at BYU as well. He is the director of Mormon Studies at Utah Valley University and has his hands in lots of different things. But many of you may have known for a book that he wrote about 10 or 11 years ago, which is a biography of Hugh Nibley. He won a bunch of awards for that. It was an amazing book. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that process about Hugh. Hugh happens to be Boyd's father-in-law as well. So uh, he, uh, he's got lots of uh, perspectives on the man. But mostly today is about Boyd and his faith journey, and I'm just thrilled to introduce him to you. So, Boyd, thank you for joining us at A Thoughtful Faith. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Let's dive in with just uh, where you were born and all the good details of your growing up life. I know it wasn't necessarily the typical Mormon home. Well, I I grew up in Provo, Utah, which is pretty typical. Yeah, it is. (laughs) So, so from that part, it was it was pretty typical Mormon. I grew right here on the Wasatch Front, in the middle of the Jello Belt, and uh, my I guess the thing that was kind of different for me is that even though I'm like fifth generation Mormon, my parents weren't very they they weren't practicing Mormons. Neither of them really felt comfortable going to church, and so so church was never really a priority for them. But it it became one for me quite early. My mother used to go to Relief Society, and I'd tag along with her for that. And occasionally we'd go to, to church. Is this back in the days when Relief Society was in the week? Yeah. Rather yeah. than the block, yeah. So uh-huh. you'd cruise along with that. I'd cruise along when I was just a tiny kid and play in the nursery. And, uh, and you know, from time to time, I, I you know, Sunday school used to be in the morning, and then sacrament meeting was in the evening. And, and it seems like uh, my mom would sometimes take me to Sunday school, but... Uh, you know, it was it was never a priority for my family to go to, to, to church meetings. Was there anything about them that basically deliberately kept the church at a arm's distance? Was there, well, uh, you know, no, so it was just like, it just didn't take with them? I think it was a combination of things. My dad, he, he was, uh, he grew up in a, a fairly atypical family, too. His own father had passed away right on his, uh, in, a, in a tragic accident, had died right on his third birthday. 
So his mother had to support the family, uh, you know, and, and there was a lot of shame in the family, and, and I think that uh, contributed to it. My father dropped out of high school and joined the Navy during World War II. Uh, he spent his 17th birthday on the Pacific Ocean, and so he never had a, a, a much of an education. He worked at a steel mill, and so he was, you know, he wasn't able to go to church on Sunday anyway a, a good share of the time because he would be at work. And then both of them drank coffee, and my dad smoked for quite a while up until uh, my mom put an end to that. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. uh, so, so I think that you know those were the main things. They never, um, I, there was never an, um, any animosity there about the church. Uh, it just wasn't really important in their lives. And in fact, you know, I remember getting the distinct impression that they were uncomfortable talking about religious issues. You know, I'd occasionally bring up something, and and they just felt very uncomfortable talking about it. So I. I learned very early that you know that was not territory to go you know you know to to go into uh, with them. Did that ever change? I know that they both passed away in the last few years. Did that yeah. ever change to where they were willing to engage or wanting to engage? Yeah, actually, we went through the temple together, but it wow. was you know it was a lot later. It was actually well after I was married, and and uh, you know so they they came a long way, um, but and and. But my dad still never really uh, felt like he fit in. I don't think you know he always. Uh, I think he always felt a, a, a kind of sense of shame about being the guy who drank coffee in the in the ward. And my parents were both Democrats too. That really didn't make them feel comfortable at church in some ways. Um, you know, my I, I remember very distinctly my dad yelling at Richard Nixon on the TV set when I was very small and. And, uh, you know, so he, he didn't fit in a lot of ways culturally with the Mormon uh, thing that was going on here in Provo. Yeah. And so I think that created some problems for them. But, you know, I, I think ultimately it was really just a matter of religion was something they were just not very comfortable talking about or, or thinking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so you, you mentioned going and playing in the nursery a little bit when you were... What, what, about what age would you say you were sort of a regular goer, and did they send you with a neighbor, or yeah. how, how did you end up starting to, to really engage? Well, I, I remember very distinctly, and this was, you know, I, I must have only been four or five because we moved uh, to a different house uh, when I was six, but I remember very distinctly a, a primary teacher talking about the Joseph Smith story, and uh, I remember going home and I was in the living room. My mother was waxing the floors in the kitchen. That was something people did back in the 1960s. And uh, so uh, all the furniture from the kitchen had been piled into the into the living room. And I was sitting on top of a stack of chairs. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I remember very distinctly sitting up there and thinking, you know, if Joseph Smith could see God, then why shouldn't I be able to see God? And uh, so I started praying to see God. You know, I, I, like I said, I must have been only about four years old. You know, it was it was a funny experience because I, of course, didn't see God, but I did have an experience that that really kind of seared my soul. I I felt this sense of just this kind of pain and homesickness that I I, I felt since then, um, but that was the first time I remember feeling it. And when you're four years old, you're able to kind of identify that at least yeah. as well. well I, I, I don't. I don't think I really identified what it was then, but but I I did later. Um, and most distinctly, I remember uh, when I finally got around to reading C.S. Lewis's book called Surprised by Joy. 
that's when I kind of I, I really related to that book because it was a very similar experience to what I had. He, he describes joy as not, um, you know, when we think of joy, we think of this real happiness. But for C.S. Lewis, joy is a is a different category. It's it's a kind of pain that's blissful, a blissful pain. Yeah. That you uh, you sense you're you're not quite from this world and there's something else out there and that you know when I read that I, I, I related to that because that was the first time I experienced it was when I was about four and uh, maybe five years old wow. and did yeah. you tie that to like I got this idea and I began to sp- do this so I really want to go to church every week you know I think from that point on I mean I don't really remember whether that was the thing that motivated me but from then on I, I had this real sense uh, of Religion being very important to me, and like I say, I I knew that my parents weren't people that I could talk to about it, but I was really obsessed with those issues. You know, I, I wanted to know God, so I found in church a, a community of believers. You know, people that could talk about God, and and so I began going. And then when I was six, we moved up into the uh, what uh, is called the Edgemont area down here in Provo, and. My aunt, my great aunt lived there, and she was a, a single, you know, elderly woman who always went to church, and she needed somebody to give her a ride to church, and so my mom gave her a ride, and I always went along, and mm-hmm. uh, so she a perpetual date to go to church with, and, uh, nice. and so she and I went to church for years and years together, and, you know, occasionally my parents would come, but for the most part, it was me and my aunt, and you know, like I say, it really gave me the sense of community. But at the same time, I also felt a sense of, of shame. And I remember very early on feeling this sense of, you know, when, whenever they'd talk about families being forever, I, I knew that my parents and I weren't sealed. Whenever they'd talk about the word of wisdom, I knew that my parents drank coffee. You know, so there were these things that would come up in lessons where I would feel this this sense of, you know, well, my family's not perfect. You know, my, my family's not as good as everybody else's. I, I remember, uh, I know I've read something that you wrote recently, and we'll talk about it, but you almost said, you said there, I think it was, at least you were hinting pretty strongly, that sometimes you felt like they chose lessons and directed them just just at you, <laughs> related to that stuff. Yeah. I don't know that they really did, but, you know, it really did feel that way. And, you yeah. know, it felt like those lessons were pointed specifically at me. Yeah, interesting. Now, your sister—you have a sister. Where did she fit in the age range? And and you know, do you want to share yeah. anything about that? Sure. Um, my sister was—we uh, we adopted my sister when uh, I was about five years old, and uh, you know, so we went to church together for quite a while. But my sister and I were, you know, five years apart, so she wasn't really part of my you know, faith journey as much. We were, we were friends and, you know, um, much more so later in life, but, you know, she wasn't really part of the, the journey. Um, and, and I think, like I say, because my parents felt so uncomfortable talking about religion, uh, it became a deeply personal thing. It was something I experienced inside, um, and, and at church. And, uh, and so I didn't really talk about it at home with my family much. Interesting. Well, take us into the, I don't know, the priesthood years. Did you get priesthood at age 12? And uh, tell us about spiritual experiences and just kind of how you made sense of life during that time. I I continued to have those experiences of, 
of uh, joy that uh, what C.S. Lewis calls joy, those kind of painful yearnings throughout my life. They were completely uncontrollable. I didn't have any, you know, it's no, there was no way I could create them. They just kind of came to me from time to time. But I think the most profound experience I had as a young adult was when I first went to, to do baptisms for the dead. And that was the closest I felt to having found a home. I don't know how to describe it, but when I was when I went into the temple that first time as a young young person, I just felt a real peace, and like I said, I just felt at home, and uh, it was a it was a very profound spiritual experience, and so that really I think anchored me in the church in a lot of ways. Of course, I took seminary as a young man, and here in Utah Valley, that was release time, so I got out of school to take seminary. But I, I think my ninth grade year was the most profound of the of them all, and we we were reading the New Testament, and uh, it was a it was an extremely profound experience. I had a very good teacher that year and read the New Testament. I think that was the year that I started having a kind of crisis about whether I could be a Mormon and a Democrat. Actually, interesting. <laughs> that was, uh, and that kept going throughout my seminary years. I knew all that my I knew that all my friends in seminary were Republicans. I, it was pretty obvious my teachers were Republicans. Um, I knew very well that my mom and dad were Democrats, and I began to have this emerging sense of you know the, the the importance of social justice and things like that. And 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 what I remember most about New Testament was um, seeing Jesus as you know a very liberal-hearted person and. Yet at the same time, I, you know, I was getting this message from seminary about kind of the, the you know, this was during the days of anti-communism, and, and uh, so those kind of very right-wing conservative messages were coming through too, and I, I started to wonder, you know, could I be, did I have to give up one or the other, you know, could I be true uh. to the sense of uh, uh, a social justice that I was having and, and, and the sense of uh, wanting to belong to the Mormon community? And I, I don't think it was until, you know, two or three years later that I, uh, as I, especially as we got into the Doctrine and Covenants, that I realized that, you know, Mormonism was very compatible with, uh, with a more progressive agenda. I, I certainly wouldn't characterize Jesus as a Democrat, but, uh, <laughs> but he's, he's certainly not a Republican either. And uh, and so that was that was kind of a crisis I think that I began to have right through there in that period was how do I reconcile my religion and my and my social views? Yeah, I mean that's pretty early to you know because you're saying all my friends are Republican, my teachers are Republican. By ninth grade, most people are just Republican or Democrat because their parents are. But it sounds like you had actually begun to really sort through what the ideological differences were. Yeah, well, I think as a Democrat in Utah County, you kind of have to. <laughs> Forced to. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Necessity uh, breeds. You have, to get to, you have to defend yourself. So I was right. early on, I had to kind of start thinking through those issues. And, well, we'll get to them eventually, but, but I, let me tease the listeners here right now. Boyd has continued as a Democrat. He's, he, uh, later on, he'll tell us a little bit about working uh, for congressmen, and he works at the Library of Congress, and he did a lot of things in D.C. And then lately, he's run twice for as a Democrat in Utah County <laughs> for uh, the State House of Representatives. So uh, he's, a, he's a very public Democrat. 
<laughs> or certified crazy person. That's right. Uh, fighting uphill battle against all that punch the straight ticket vote. I mean, geez, if we could stop that, maybe be a chance. Oh, craziness. Anyway, my friend, well, let's keep going back with, uh, so you talked about that being a pivotal year in ninth grade or so, and tell us anything in your priesthood responsibilities, home teaching, anything that just kind of maybe was pivotal? Well, I think, you know, getting the priesthood, I did feel this sense of uh, even more belonging to that community. Um, uh, I I was definitely not with the jock side of the of the priest quorum and the and the you know teachers quorum. I was uh, my good friends and I. We were the we were the nerds. And uh, but but uh, it did give me a great sense of belonging. And I I think the the most spiritual experiences I had were were doing service. We, we had a lot of opportunities in those days to go to the welfare farms and uh, things like that. And, and, and so we'd be working side by side with, you know, other members of the, of the ward. And, and uh, my adult leaders took such a great interest in me. I, I'm sure that at some level they saw me as the pet project because they knew my parents were inactive. But, um, but I just had some really terrific um, leaders who, who were very uh, nurturing and kind and uh, and really t- took me under their wing, and and in particular, I had a bishop who he had been my scout leader when I was younger, and then he became the the bishop and and was our priest uh, group leader, priest quorum advisor, and you know he he just he was somebody that I just really grew to to respect and became very close to, and and so those relationships really gave me a sense of belonging within within the church community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anything to mention uh, before we go to your mission or how the circumstances of you getting called and all that? Yeah, well, you know, by the time I was 19, I was so enmeshed in, in Mormonism by that age that there really wasn't a question for me. I, I, I'm sure that for my parents, they would have been fine if I hadn't gone on a mission. Um, they, they didn't discourage me, but, you know, it was not something I was, you know, I, I had so many friends who... You know that had been their their parents had been you know having them save up for their mission and praying nightly about their mission and you know that just wasn't my experience at all. But but, but by the time I was nineteen, uh, a mission was was just something I I was planning on. And you got called to where? Well, I uh, I had taken French during high school and and uh, junior high, and I I loved France. And I desperately wanted to go to France, so I knew I wouldn't go to France. But, you know, that's where I was hoping to go. And, and uh, I got my call, and sure enough, I ended up in the Paris mission. Awesome. That is unusual when yeah, that it, happens. I think it's because I was a bad French student. Okay, <laughs> so redeem, redeem that work that you I did. I redeem that by going to France and actually learning the language. Well, uh, tough mission, though. I mean, great yeah. city and uh, interesting culture to get immersed in, but I bet that wasn't at least uh, an easy mission in terms of a high number of baptisms and whatnot. <laughs> no, and it, in fact, my perception of what I was going to get into was, was so different from what I actually got. It, it was, you know, I you hear these mission stories from return missionaries, and they're so glorious, and wonderful and and then you get there and it's it's just such a stark difference um i i imagined you know walking down the champs elysees and 
talking to French people and having these wonderful intellectual conversations and eating wonderful French food. And, uh, you know, I, I just had this vision of what it would be like to be a missionary in France that was so different from, from what I was doing. Because when I got there, we were living in this horrible um, apartment with, you know, five, five other elders and me. And, and uh, the, the conditions were just, you know, so Spartan. And uh, I, I remember the very first meal we had was Elder Rossi's lasagna, which was basically noodles and, and tomato paste and cheese. And it was just awful. <laughs> so the food was bad and, and the living conditions were horrible. And we were living in this, in this part of uh, the, on the outskirts of Paris that was kind of a, uh, an industrial area. It was not very beautiful and certainly not very cultured. And most of the people we were talking to were not even French. They were from Algeria or Morocco. And, and uh, you know, so I didn't speak very good French, and they didn't speak very good French. And it was just this really strange experience trying to communicate with people in, in a third language that neither of us understood. Interesting. How long did the expectations and the realities take before you were able to somewhat embrace uh, what the reality was? Well, you know, that, that first month was just horrible. And I, I remember very distinctly being in a, in a discussion with one of my companions. And, uh, and, and you know, I had, I'd been in the MTC. We'd done the missionary discussions enough times, even though I wasn't very good at them yet. But I knew where I was supposed to bear my testimony. And I, I remember him turning to me and it was my turn, and I just couldn't do it. You know, I, I felt so depressed. Um, and I, I, have, I have a long history with depression. We can talk some more about that, I guess. But, um, but I, I felt horribly depressed. My expectations were so different from the reality. And uh, I, I just felt kind of deceived. You know, I, I, I had these expectations. I, I thought they were true. I, I knew... You know, I had this belief that the church was true and that I'd get there and I felt like I'd been deceived. Um, I just felt horrible. And uh, so he turned to me and expected me to bear my testimony. And I just, I pretended that I didn't understand. Uh, but, but honestly, I just couldn't say, you know, that I, I believed in the church at that point. Uh, it was just beyond me. And uh, I, I really suffered with a, a pretty dark depression for the first month, month and a half while I was there. And I, I think the thing that really, I, I, one of the bleakest moments was uh, I, I was going to church one day and uh, I just felt horribly depressed. And I, I felt this sense of, you know, do I go home and disappoint, you know, even though my family wouldn't really have have been concerned with me going on a mission, they would have been sh ashamed of me coming home. I, I felt like it at least I had internalized that sense of shame, and and so I didn't feel like I could go, could go home. And I, I just kept thinking, I've got two years of this. How am I going to survive? And and I was at church, and I was just feeling so glum. And uh, I remember one of the bishopric members coming up to me, and you know, it was a very small gesture, but he just put his arm around me and said, "Hello, elder. How are you doing?" And I, you know, I don't know what it was about that, but it really um, for some reason, I just felt this pure love come over me. Um, I, I felt like he was kind of a, a conduit um, of, of God's love. 
and uh, for some reason that that really changed me and uh, I you know it didn't make everything suddenly better um, I still suffered with depression throughout my mission at times um, it, it didn't make it easier in a lot of ways but I felt this sense of it'd be okay and I was doing what I should be doing and mm -hmm. and so after that I I was okay <laughs> but, um, but but it wasn't an easy mission it was it was a very hard mission very few baptisms and uh, I, I counted a few but Really, it was pretty negligible, <laughs> and, uh, and and a lot of hard times, just knocking on doors, you know, sixty hours a week, and hearing tell you that uh, they they don't want to hear what you have to say. And and the French are wonderful because they they don't tell you to go away; they tell you exactly where to put what body part and in what position. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> can be extremely descriptive. <laughs> <laughs> Too so a lot of rejection, and I learned a lot of really bad words in French. <laughs> oh, man. Too hilarious. There are some advantages to cultures like that, though. <laughs> On my mission to Seattle, you know, people are so nice, and they don't really want to tell you no, they're not interested, so they make an appointment with you, and then they don't show up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Well, so at least you... <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, anything as far as, you know, what, what would you say were the great takeaways from your mission, if there were any, in terms of things that you hang on to now in your spiritual journey or that you that kind of set you up to, to experience God in a certain way? Or... I, I think one of the things that surprised me, this was back in the days when Bruce R. McConkie had talked about the great and abominable church and how Catholicism was, you know, Satan's church and, right. <laughs> and all of that stuff. And so, you know, here I was in the land of Catholics. I mean, you can't get any more Catholic than France unless you're in Italy. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I expected to be very put off. And I, I remember the first time I went into a French cathedral and I just felt God's presence. You know, it, it was, it was very different. You know, it wasn't the expectations that I had come to accept as a Mormon. It was, it was very, you know, culturally different, just as France is culturally different from Provo. But I just felt, I, I gained this absolute love for French cathedrals. And, uh, uh, you know, every town that I was in, every place that I visited, I had to go to the cathedral. And I, I loved the stained glass. I, I loved the, I just loved the spirit that was there. Yeah. I know that some of my companions thought I was kind of weird <laughs> because we were supposed to think they were the Antichrist or something. And, and were they actually saying, ooh, I feel a dark spirit in here? You'd, you'd hear that. I mean, I remember staring out to one of the apartments in, in Paris. Uh, I didn't live there, but I was there on a visit one time, and uh, it looked out on, on Notre Dame. and. I remember one of the elders looking at it and saying, you know, there's the great and abominable horror of all the earth or something. Wow. <laughs> and there was, you know, part of him was probably joking, but there was so much that, so many of them that really did believe that, um, that, that it, was the, it was the Antichrist church. So I think one of the things that I really got out of that was a sense of, you know, I'm not alone as a Mormon, um, that there are a lot of people of faith. Now, most of the people I was talking to at the door, if they were French, 
they were catholic non pratiquant they 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 weren't practicing you know they they or or atheists even but when i talked to somebody who was a faithful catholic you know i i felt god's presence and uh, mm-hmm. so so that was kind of a unique experience here i was you know telling people about the the true church and the restoration and yet I'd run into these people who are Catholic and and feel this real profound connection there. Neat. And it sounds like this is an experience of you're away from home and you're learning to trust your own experience versus what others are telling you. Yeah. Oh, my mission was wonderful that way because I think, you know, I mentioned how I kind of internalized the shame from my parents. Um, when I got on my mission, nobody knew anything about me and mm. uh, having a name like Boyd J. Peterson, you know, <laughs> when people hear, heard, uh, you know, my name, they'd start asking, you know, well, are you related to Marky e. Peterson or uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <were> you, <laughs> sometimes I'd play it up and say, yeah, I w- I'm, he's my grandfather and I was named after Elder Packer. And <laughs> oh man, funny. <laughs> but, but you know, I, nobody knew anything about my background. Nobody knew that my parents were inactive. Nobody knew anything. And so, my mission was really a place where I felt liberated. I I just gained this sense of of freedom from all that baggage that I had. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that that was really wonderful. Anything else from your mission that was like a pivot or a, you know, something that's stuck? Well, you know, I, I, again, the Catholicism, it wasn't like I didn't think the church was, the, the LDS church was true. It's just that I felt like that the sense of distance between us wasn't as great as I had imagined. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice. I had imagined. And, uh, and so that was something that I really took away, um, a, a sense of self-confidence that I gained from my mission definitely came home a different person than I left. You know, I, I, I felt much um, more confident about, about my faith and about myself as a, as a grown-up. Awesome. So was it straight to BYU, or where did you, what did you do after your mission? I came home from my mission, and uh, I came home in the middle of a semester, so I couldn't really start right away back to school. And I, I debated where to go. I had done a semester at BYU, but I wasn't convinced I should stay. I thought maybe I'd go up to the U. I had a friend who was up at the U. My cousin was up at Utah State. So I, I wasn't sure where to go, but I eventually went, went to BYU. And that first semester back, a friend of mine started a college bowl team. And uh, college bowl was like trivial pursuits, uh, you know, but uh, in a in an intramural setting, so you're competing. Right. Uh, and we were the worst college ball team ever. <laughs> we were awful. But he he brought together me and, and uh, my future wife, Zina. Uh, awesome. And so that was the first time I met her, was in this little college ball team. Of, and right after you got home from your mission. so it was <laughs> Right after we got home, yeah. It was, it was pretty soon thereafter. Oh. So this is this is Zina Nibley. Was there an awareness of Hugh Nibley yeah. at the point? At that point, you know, that was the funny thing. I I knew the name Nibley. I mean, I think everybody who was Mormon had heard the name Nibley. I I really had no idea who he was. I knew there was something there. You know, it was like if her last name had been 
I don't know, you know, some famous millionaire or something. You know, I I knew there was fame attached to it somewhere, but or, or something, but but I really had no idea who he was, and and I think that actually helped me because Zina was very suspicious of boys who were trying to, because they wanted to meet her father, you know, and. And I had no idea who our father was. I was just interested in her. And so I think that actually helped me in the, in the competition, as it were. <laughs> awesome. Well, was it a uh, pretty quick romance, or was this a matter of years, or how long did it take um, you guys to get together? Pretty quick. It was a typical BYU thing. You know, we met and got engaged a few months later and then got married a few months later. And so it was pretty quick. It was very, we were very young and. You know, I was nine. I was uh, twenty-two. So, um, and, uh, so you know, we were we were typical BYU kids. <laughs> but it was, you know, I once I got engaged, I started having people ask me, you know, well, is she related to Hugh Nibley? And then when I'd say yes, he's her father, they'd start telling me Hugh Nibley story. Oh, interesting. So you started <laughs> getting the folklore before you met the man, practically. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I, I started hearing these Hugh Nibley stories long before I actually met him. And and then they'd ask me questions, and I had no idea. You know, I I just, I, I was just interested in Zina. And uh, so that actually kind of sparked some interest, you know, I think, in getting to know him and his work. And I I started reading his his essays, his writings, and and what really caught my attention more than anything were his social commentary. Right, for sure. You know, I, I, I think there was a, you know, there was a sense of I identity there that I I could share with him because these same issues I was very concerned about with, uh, you know, social justice and education and the environment. All these kinds of things that seem very important to me, he was tying into the gospel, and I was just, I, I, I had a soulmate, you know. So that is so great. I was very fortuitous. It was very fortuitous that I married into a family that you know jived so well because uh, you know I think there's like three Democrats in Utah, so in Utah County. So I was very lucky to find one. Yeah, no kidding. You know, and I'm, I'm I'm getting a sense because of you and my interactions with him and and stuff. He probably wasn't like this guy protecting his daughter from this outsider boy. You know, was it easy for? Did you ask for his permission? And was it one of those kinds of things, or is he like, oh, I have so many children. Here's another daughter that's about to get married, and we'll size this guy up somewhere down the road. Or... It was more like that. He was very distant in yeah, some. That's his, what I've heard. But, you know, he was very friendly, and, and uh, I, I think the thing that concerned me most, uh, well, the first time I met him, he apologized for the suit he was wearing, which I thought was kind of strange at the time, but even stranger later, because he never wore a suit that was any better. I mean, yeah, it was all crumpled always, yeah. Always wearing crumpled, uh, you know, Deseret Industry kind of suits, but I think he was just as nervous about meeting me as I was about meeting him. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, well, we'll, t- we'll do a little Hugh Nibley a little bit later. I, d- I definitely want to talk about, you know, the process of writing the book and, and that stuff, but that, that's fun. So you guys ended up getting married. Did you start a family right away? Was it, I know you guys were both intense on your educations, and at least at some point you decided to alternate who goes to grad school when and all that. So take us through, you know, 
early family start? So we, after we got married, we were still both BYU undergrads, and we, Zina wanted to move into the, she had taken classes from Eugene England, and she desperately wanted to move into his ward. And I was very adamant that I did not believe in shopping for a ward. <laughs> I, I wanted to, to, you know, go where the Lord want me. I was very idealistic about these things, you know. And, and so we, we looked around for student housing, and uh, finally we ended up moving into a little apartment that my aunt owned. It was very small, but a little bit above the typical standards that you had in, in student housing. And just a few days later, we started, you know, asking around at the, you know, asking the neighbors whose ward we were in, and and we found out we were in Eugene England's ward. And by it's, that, you mean the ward that he is the bishop of? Yeah, he was the bishop of the student ward, the BYU right. 139th ward. And we had just, you know, Zina had willed it, and we'd done it. <laughs> so, Interesting. So we ended up in Gene England's ward, and uh, so if there were any two influences on my life as I entered young adulthood, it would be Hugh Nibley and, and Eugene England. Um, Gene was just an amazing bishop, and, and uh, I started reading both Hugh Nibley's writings and Eugene England's writings about the same time, and Gene uh, had just a huge influence on me. I think, you know, like I say, Hugh Nibley's influence was really, you know, this kind of sense of uh, social justice and its application to the gospel. And Eugene England, I, I gained from him this sense that uh, paradox was central to the gospel, that, uh, you know, that it's not so much a matter of uh, a good, a choice between good and evil so much often as a, a choice between two goods, obedience and integrity, for example. And, and uh, I, I just uh, came to really love Eugene England. Uh, he he was he was a bishop who took really close uh, paid very close attention to each one of the the members of his ward and he Zine and I were very young when we got married and we fought a lot and he was I, I credit him with salvaging our marriage wow. through that really turbulent uh, turbulent period there and and uh, you know he was just such a caring and, and kind person and. And his wife, Charlotte, was in, in some ways his counselor. You know, she was such an active part of the ward and, and equally kind and gracious and wonderful. And, and we just, we felt like we'd found, you know, another family in that uh, small ward. The, the students there were all so kind and, and uh, you know, each family had its own little peculiar problems and its own peculiar gifts my first job in, in church after we got married, uh, Jean called me to be the sunbeam teacher. And <laughs> I called it the first quorum of sunbeams. And right. the, I had one student, uh, I think that I only had one student initially, but she was the daughter of two mentally handicapped uh, people that were in the ward boundaries. I don't think either one was a BYU student, but somehow Jean had decided that we really needed them in the ward, and they were um, people that, you know, they fit in. We kind of nurtured them and took care of them just like everybody else, and their daughter was not mentally handicapped. She was very precocious, and, you know, I, I was just really touched by the way Jean worked with, you know, these people, and, and 
welcomed them, treated them with such great respect, and you know it was it was such a challenge to deal with their daughter because she was, you know, she was just a a five year old girl, but boy, she she really had it together, and, and so much didn't, and uh, you know, so so being the sunbeam teacher of of one person who uh, who was so gifted but had such challenges, yeah. Uh, you know that was that was really a remarkable experience too. Yeah, you know, Gene's written about that couple a few times in in some of his essays, and he he talks about also you, you mentioned how he took so good care of them. He had to teach a lot of ward members to learn to to love them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because of there were hygiene issues, there were oh, just yeah. a lot of demands and stuff. So I remember him him reflecting on that in a few spots. So I had not known that that you had that up close and personal experience with them it was wonderful though he we uh we actually you know would have i i remember for pioneer day we had uh um sacrament meeting up in the mountains we went up to sunday right. so we had sacrament meeting up there and and uh he talked to, he talked about pioneer stories but he talked about how we were all part of this larger tradition um i i, I remember uh you know his wife made uh, wonderful ice cream, and so we'd go yes. out ice cream after Ward Temple night, and uh, it, it was just you know, yeah. like I said, they were just like parents to us. And That's so great! What it, a blessing! Yeah, it really was a blessing. Okay, so you guys are getting through BYU. When did you? When did Mary come along? Well, we uh, we actually. After graduation, well, Zina graduated. I did my last semester on a Washington seminar, and uh, we went back to Washington D.C. Um, we lived on the Maryland side, and uh, I worked for Congressman Wayne Owens, who I had a great deal of respect for, the lone Mormon Democrat in the in the Utah delegation at the time. Uh, those were yeah. the days. Yeah. <laughs> And so I worked for Wayne for, you know, uh, I just did an, uh, an internship with him for four months. And, you know, that was, I, when I went back to Washington, I really had this belief that I was going to be a mover and shaker and become, you know, uh, part of the Washington crowd or something. And it didn't take me more than a week to realize I was not a mover and shaker. I was more of an ideas guy. I'd, I'd much rather sit and think than actually get down and have to compromise. <laughs> so, right, right. so the the Washington thing really, it didn't take me long to realize I didn't really care for it all that much. But after we'd made this huge commitment to move back there. And it was back there for Catholic University for Zina, right? Yeah, so we, we went back and Zina did grad school and I was doing, I was going to work full time. And so I was hoping to move into an inter, from the internship into another job. Uh, which I did. I ended up working for the Senate Energy Committee, and then I ended up with the uh, Congressional Research Service. But but I was so much not a Washington kind of guy. I uh, so I started grad school too, and I, I did my master's degree part time at the University of Maryland. And uh, Zina did her master's degree and PhD at the Catholic University. And uh, Mary came along. I guess that would have been 1989. So. We'd been married a few years by then, about four years, five years. Um, and uh, But right in the middle of Zina's uh, graduate work and kind of held that up. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but Washington was a, 
a blessing and a curse for us. I mean, I, I learned an awful lot there, but I really hated what I was doing. And uh, I, you know, I've, I've mentioned this issue of depression. Um, you know, I think it, it, there must be a genetic component because I think my father had depression. I, I know it, uh, it's something that plagued his side of the family. His sister committed suicide. And, and uh, my mother, uh, she suffered from seasonal affective disorder, uh, even though, you know, at the time they never had that diagnosis. But mom would spend the winters just, uh, you know, cursing winter, um, especially when we had these temperature inversions where you could, wouldn't see sunshine for sometimes a month at a time. And mm -hmm. mom, she'd just get up in the morning and, and, and talk about how she hated winter. And it was almost as if the weather was a personal affront to her. And uh, Washington was not very good for my moods because um, I was working, you know, eight to ten hour days. And so I would go into the city when it was dark and I'd come home when it was dark. So I wouldn't see a whole lot of sunshine. And uh, winters there were really tough for us. And uh, our first year there, we were, we were living in the basement of an apartment uh, uh, a little house that uh, it was really pretty bleak conditions. The the woman upstairs that we were renting from was dying of cancer, and so she was moaning and crying. And her, um, it, it smelled bad, and the floors leaked, and it was a pretty hard time. So I, I suffered with a lot of depression in the Washington D.C. area, and uh, so you know my. Uh, in, in terms of faith, I think in a lot of ways, Gene England and Hugh Nibley, people like that really prepared me for the kind of conflicts I'd run into in grad school. I think the really difficult things for me have been these periods of depression where, you know, I felt like the heavens were just closed and I couldn't uh, get answers or any kind of relief or perspective. And, and uh, th those were really difficult times for me. Now, were you a poli-sci major or something through BYU? Because I know you ended up getting a PhD in English. Well, actually, I uh, I was an international relations major and okay. a BYU. And I thought I was doing a practical thing by doing an international relations major. And uh, I thought that, you know, I was going to end up going into politics or State Department or something like that. Um, but once I kind of got back there and realized that government really wasn't for me, I ended up doing my graduate degrees in comparative literature. Okay. So, uh, kind of English, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. All that stuff, it's it's all the same to me. Yeah. <laughs> Just I, I know when I talk to you, you'll say, yeah, they're hiring a lit guy or they're hiring a writing guy. And it's all just English to me. You know, it's, right. well, the English department's yeah. hiring. <laughs> I work yeah, in the English department, but yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, uh, but. Get us. Uh, I know Zina eventually got a job at BYU, and then you finished your degree work at the University of Utah, if I remember right. Yeah, so I did my uh, PhD at the University of Utah. So and... you came back. You came back to Zion, and yeah. <laughs> you guys have pretty much never left since Zina has continued to teach at BYU, right? Yeah, so we've lived here ever since then. So we spent, uh, I guess it was eight years in the D.C. area, and then came back here. Um, okay. And so you had Mary and Christian at least back there, I'm guessing. Yeah. And yeah. then you have two other sons. Yeah, quite a bit later. We thought we were done, and then all of a sudden two little boys came along after that. So, yeah, we had those those two in, in Utah. 
and it's you know it's been nice because I was uh, you know we were able to be there with my my family and her her family as her father passed away and then as my two parents passed away so you know we it was nice to be close there for those years and let our kids get to know their grandparents and and uh, and so that's been a very good you know a very positive part of it you know there's other aggravations about living in utah but it's funny because when i when we left here we were very excited about leaving and thought we'd never ever ever come back to utah yep. when we came back we were very happy to be back it's it's you know, there's a lot about utah that uh, we really just we just love very cool before we leave your adventures and and settling here in utah and the rest of your family coming this is a story that you're welcome to share or not, so I'll cut it out if you say no. But uh, you had shared something with me that was kind of this, one of these uh, spiritual experiences that you don't really quite know what to do with. You're not sure if it was a true vision or whatever, but it really opened you up, and it has to do with the birth of your of your final child. Yeah, we, we uh, it, uh, again, I mean, it's it's one of those experiences I, I don't share a lot, not because it's 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 overly personal or anything it's just that i don't expect other people to believe you know my subjective experience but when when our final child was born zina was in the middle of uh, she was going up for uh, tenure and it was not a good time to have a child she was really stressed out and i was stressed out because she was the you know she was the one at that time who had a full-time job and and benefits, and so we were both pretty stressed out people, and we had no idea she was pregnant. And I think my mother was the first one who asked us. She says, "Zina, are you pregnant?" And I was like, uh, "No, I don't think so." <laughs> and so, you know, my mother knew before any of us, I guess. But even before uh, we found out, I was sitting down at the dinner table, and and Zina had just gone up to wash her hands, and and the kids were all gathered, and we were about to eat dinner, and and I I yelled up to Zina, I I said Zina, get get Nate as as you come down. Nate's the the was the youngest at that time, and then I realized Nate was sitting there next to me, but I had seen a little boy walk through our living room, and. I thought it was Nate, but he was sitting right next to me. And, I mean, I didn't know what to make of this experience because I didn't know Zina was pregnant at that time. Like I say, neither of us. We were not planning on a child. This was not something we were expecting or hoping for. But, uh, you know, I this little boy, had I mean, as clear as day, he had walked through my living room. I was wide awake, and I, I just was really... It was a very remarkable experience. You know, looking back on it, I feel like in some way maybe the heavens were giving us the sense of everything would be okay, that this was meant to be, that he was part of our life and, and we needed him. And and, uh, and he really has been an absolute blessing. But at the time, boy, it did not look like a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like the end of the world. And uh, so when we actually did find out that, that Zina was pregnant, you know, I, I think we both, Zina had a similar experience. Um, oh, I hadn't heard that part. And so you kind of knew he'd be a blonde boy. Yeah, there wasn't we, much doubt that you, were, you weren't picking too many girls' names yeah, out or anything. Absolutely. Both of us saw him in broad daylight <laughs> before we even knew she was pregnant. And, Interesting. Uh, 
you know, so it was, it was one of these strange experiences. I don't know how to explain it. You know, if anything, it gave me a feeling for the idea of a pre-Earth life. You know, I, I've written a little bit about the war in heaven, and I, I really feel strongly that there's something about us that exists before we're born, after that experience. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do with it. I don't, uh, I don't understand how it happened or what it was all about. But like I say, I, I felt reassured after we found out that, that Zyna was going to have a baby, that, that somehow it was part of a larger plan and that right. we'd get through it one way or another. <laughs> yeah, just a little valentine that says, don't uh, jump off the ledge. Don't jump off the ledge. And I think we both needed that, really, because... Uh, <laughs> We probably would have. <laughs> it was pretty frightening. Uh, well, thanks for sharing that, Six. Uh, we can move on to something else now, but I just wanted to get that story in, so thanks. Well, dude, that's kind of external life sketch, a little bit of some of the spiritual journey in there. Are, are you okay if we just kind of turn more now towards Mormonism, your adventures within it? Maybe we ought to just start with, at what point did you decide to write the biography, and was that your first real chance to get to know your father-in-law? Yeah, I kind of, you know, like I say, when I first met him, I didn't know who he was, and, and I, I started trying to just get to know him through his writings, and Zina's brother got a bunch of letters that Hugh had, uh, had been writing with a friend of his, Paul Springer, they had been correspondents for, you know, 40 years or so. And he let me have these letters. And I made photocopies of them and gave them back. But they were remarkable letters. And so I started thinking, you know, somebody's got to write a family history of Hugh Nibley. And I was never thinking of this as a bigger project than just something for the family. And as I got into it, I realized this story was so remarkable. I, his war stories, just in general, were, were really interesting because he, he landed on, on Utah Beach on D-Day right, right. and attached to the 101st Airborne. And so, you know, just these really interesting stories that I, I started to learn about through these letters. And so I started collecting materials. And eventually I started realizing this was, this was a bigger thing than just a family history. This, this had an audience. So I, I started that really when my daughter was born. So when that would have been about 89 when I started collecting things, thinking it was just a family history. And then eventually I, I realized it was a bigger thing. And so after we moved back to Utah, I started putting things together and thinking of it as a, 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 a full-scale biography. And that was uh, you know just a really wonderful opportunity to get to know him. And, and he was really remarkably open. I was I was very nervous about doing this because he he could be pretty severe at times. You know, he he was not somebody you wanted to mess with in terms. Of, you know, he could he had a very sharp wit. You know, so I I was treading on his his life history. You know, and I I was very nervous about how he'd he'd react to this. But he was very generous, and I I think after a while I kind of won his trust and. And he opened up, and it was a really uh, a wonderful opportunity to get to know him. I think the thing about his faith that I found remarkable is he—he he was a very smart person. He—he he knew, you know, where where the bodies were buried, as it were. <laughs> and yet he had managed to, you know, he 
as a young boy, had, had caddied. He, he, his uh, grandfather used to love to play golf, and they'd come out to California where Hugh grew up, and, and Hugh would caddy for them when they'd play golf. And often it was with a general authority. His grandfather was in the first presidency, and, and so, you know, sometimes general authorities would come out and, and play golf. And, and he got to see the human side of general authorities, you know, pretty early on in his life. And, you know, so he, he saw the very human side of, of the church. But Hugh had a real mystical side to him. And he, he really had this ability to tap into uh, the spiritual side of the church. The, um, you know, he understood the, the spiritual parts, the, the, the mystical experiences and things. And, and so I, I, I think one of the things I really gained from him is, is an ability to see that the church can have human people running it, but there's still access to, to the divine through that. Very cool. Any particular remarkable experiences while writing it that you know shifted your worldview, or is it just more this gradual immersion in a life that that's able to do that? Oh, there were a number of experiences that really were were quite remarkable, and and you know one of the things about Hugh that was really that I I kind of figured out really early on was that he he had an ability to tap into just serendipity, things that just kind of happened. And he would take advantage of them and see them as a blessing from God. And things like that started happening to me, too. I I remember Ah. I was uh, in in special collections looking for a letter. I'd I'd found a a letter that uh, was going on one side of a conversation. I knew there had to be the other, you know, the answer to this letter somewhere in in the files. And I could not find it. And I just by chance pulled a box off the shelf I had a very generous librarian who actually let me back into the stacks and and I, I was back there in, in the manuscripts collection and, and I just by chance pulled a box off a shelf and there in the front of this box was a letter that had been completely misfiled. But it was the letter I was looking for. Oh, cool. <laughs> and so, you know, things like that started to happen and one time uh I, I said to Zion, I said, you know, Hugh had had these experiences where he had gone down to, to visit the Hopi, uh, the Hopi Indian Reservation. And I said to Zina, gosh, it would be great to, to be able to experience that. You know, I wonder what that would have been like. And two days later, her brother called and said, hey, Boyd, I've got a chance to go down and visit the Hopi. Would you be interested in going? And so these, these little kind of quirky things happened that were really remarkable. And... So, uh, you know, the, the other thing that I really gained from Hugh was a sense of, you know, he, he was able to put the, the church into a larger context where, you know, he, could, he appreciated things like rituals that the Hopi were doing and could see, you know, uh, a divine pattern there in, in these other experiences that weren't part of the typical Latter-day Saint life, you know, and he could find these parallels that uh, really opened up the world to me in ways that were quite remarkable. Yeah, that is absolutely the strength of Hugh Nibley with all of his wide reading and and finding those connections that even though the symbols are different, the stories are different, they all sort of point to the same sensibilities and and work on the soul in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. 
just to alert listeners, Boyd has already agreed to do to be part of a panel discussion that'll either be hosted at my podcast Mormon Matters or perhaps by John Delenn at Mormon Stories, and we're just going to talk about Hugh Nibley and his life and his influence and you know the status of, of Nibleyites and <laughs> Nibleyism <laughs> in today's Mormonism and stuff. Now, Boyd, I do have to ask one thing. It's weird. Uh, maybe this is one of those synchronicities related to you. Uh, yeah. Just in the last two weeks, somebody says, you know, because we did a podcast over at Mormon Matters on the Adam God Doctrine. Yeah. And, and you know, people start, one guy writes me and he says, you know, I hear that you nibbly believed in that one. And I've heard, and I've heard, I've heard that you believes in reincarnation and yeah. these different things. Are you willing or able to share anything about Hugh of that were were there things like this that he kept quiet? Oh yeah. Ter- yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, Share and, what you're willing. I, I was uh, I was just thinking about this one today. So there's another synchronicity. So I I was you know I when I first married Zina I'd just come home from a mission very you know very gung ho about the gospel and um, and uh, you know I'd been reading some of his stuff that was very apologetic and you know trying to respond to critics and. And one day I, I asked him in person, you know, I was, it was a family gathering of some kind, and I just quietly went up to him and I said, you know, there's a lot written about the Adam-God theory. Have, have you responded to that in any way? And what, 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 do, what do we say about that? I mean, there's, there's a lot of critics, anti-Mormons, who write about this. And Hugh's response was really kind of funny. He says, he just very gruffly said, oh, I, I don't think about that. And then he backed up and he says, well, I think about it. I don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think it was pretty obvious that he, he gave Brigham Young a great deal of credibility. He, he, he thought of Brigham Young as a very coherent theologian. You know, I, I, he was not willing to share whether he believed in Adam-God theory or not, but the nature of the question or the nature of his response made me believe that you know, he took him seriously, and and uh, the other thing that was interesting, you know, whether you agree with this or not, if uh, if the church had taken a, had made a decision to to not talk about something, Hugh Nibley wasn't going to talk about it, even though he may disagree with it. Yeah, yeah. Blacks and the priesthood was a kind of similar issue when they, they put together the um, dialogue, Bush dialogue yeah, yeah. three issue. Um, they had asked several people to do pieces for that, and. Hugh was one of the people they asked. And then I guess there was some blowback and several people backed out. And Hugh didn't back out, but his response was really very nebulous. He doesn't really say, you know, for a guy who's very, you know, gung-ho about defending the church, he wasn't really defending the church's position on blacks and the priesthood. That was the issue where Eugene England did the the Mormon cross and Esther Bush's piece. And then later, you know, he comes out with, after the priesthood ban had been lifted, he came out with his book about Abraham, Abraham in Egypt, where he just completely laid to rest all of the folklore that had been, you know, tying the book of Abraham to, you know, the, the seed of Cain and, and all that stuff and Egyptus and all this. He, he really knocked that one right out. But he didn't do it until after the ban had been lifted. So Abraham and Egypt came out in 81. And so he, he had a very interesting position there because on the one hand, he defended the church in every place he felt like he could. But if he you know, disagreed or, or didn't feel like the church's position was 
okay, he just kind of kept silent on, on those kind of issues. Interesting. Well, we'll dig into all this in, in our separate yeah, podcast yeah. here. So we'll, we'll go the round. So thank you for sharing that stuff with us. I want to do, uh, let's just talk, talk about the depression issue for a, a bit longer. You mentioned it, and it sounds a lot like, you know, the first month of your mission back in D.C. There, there's sort of a, I think there's a couple of types of depression. Some is sort of situational triggered thing and then there's for others there's this that deep susceptibility to really just you know lose all affect and all zest for life and and things like that that regardless of circumstances life could be going well but you still might fall into these periods of melancholia do you suffer from both or is it more of just a a, you know a yeah tell us more about because you one of the nice things about being friends with you is you're you're so open about, hey, I take antidepressants <laughs> and, yeah. and and things like that. So kind of kind of reflect on on that because I think there's going to be a, a a bunch of our listeners that really need a peek into that. Yeah, it's you know it, it it's strange because my mother had a really as I said she had a very severe case of of uh, um, seasonal affective disorder, and yet at the same time uh, there was a deep mistrust her of anything having to do with psychology um, she you know the, she just came from an era where the idea of talking to a counselor or a psychologist was just that would be like talking to Lucifer and taking any kind of medical you know any kind of medicine to, to help with depression or something um, my aunt on her side my, my mother's sister evidently had taken some kind of whether an antidepressant or Valium or something my mother called them nerve pills. <laughs> right, no, definitely the term. She yep. was very anxious about that, you know, these nerve pills that could just do crazy things to your head or something, you know. So I, I lived with this until I was quite a bit older. In fact, the first time I ever took an antidepressant was after we got to Utah. And uh, I, I think I kind of suffer from both. I, I think there's a, a lot of triggers, you know, in my life that, cause me to lapse into these depressed moods and then certainly lack of sunlight can do it and and sometimes it just does I, I don't know this has been one of the things that's been difficult for me with my testimony too with my sense of uh, the church is that I, I started to question you know what I know because the first time I took antidepressants it was winter and I was starting into a really dark period and Zina had just said, you know, why don't you get some help? And I thought, you know, why not? And so I went to the doctor, and I think he prescribed Zoloft or something. And I remember a couple of days into that, I was outside, and, and we were up sledding with the kids. And I looked around, and all of a sudden I realized I was happy, and it was winter. And it was the strangest thing, because I didn't know you could be happy in the winter. It, I... I, I I just was startled, you know, that I could be happy in the winter. Because winter had always been something you just strive through. You just kind of, you know, stoically endure. So antidepressants became something that I've, you know, taken off and on whenever I've had this sense of, you know, I'm going down. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, I think we've got a lot of problems with this. There's, there's a great stigma about mental health. If somebody breaks their arm, you you don't, uh, you know, there's no problem with going to a doctor or a hospital for that. But if, if somebody happens to, you know, have a, 
any kind of mental illness, we start worrying about, you know, a scene from Psycho or something. You know, it's, people get really anxious about that kind of thing. But, you know, my, in my life, you know, antidepressants have been a real blessing. But again, it's caused me to wonder what I am. Uh, because I've, you know, if a chemical can change my feelings so radically, I mean, after my father passed away, I went into a really dark depression. Where, and, and it, you know, it'd be funny because I, I could walk by the bananas in the produce aisle and start to, to cry. You know, it was, it was just the darndest thing. Uh, so, so just really strange triggers would lead to these just bleak moments. And, and again, a lot of that caused me to wonder, where's God in this? You know, why is God letting this, why, why is God letting me suffer? Why, why do I go through this? And so some of the most difficult times spiritually have also been those times emotionally where I've, I've just really struggled with that. But, uh, yeah, so antidepressants have been a big help. Maybe just one more minute on this. The stigma that you talked about is there's sort of a sense that, well, if you prayed and read your scriptures and the Holy Ghost would be with you and and the fruits of the Spirit are joy and da-da-da-da-da. And so it's it's really, it's almost like a, a fault versus a chemical predisposition or genetic predisposition how do you have you been able to do any open advocacy on that or is it just something that well i've written a few things in fact i i gave a talk in sacrament meeting a few years ago where i i reflected on this problem and uh, i i called it an imperfect brightness of hope <laughs> but and it i i just published that essay in in dialogue and and remarkably, I think you know I've I've written quite a few things, but that little essay I've probably gotten more feedback on that than just about anything I've written. Yeah, uh, and and so that's that's made me feel really good because I I think I think there is a need for more understanding about mental health issues. I mean, certainly I'm not an expert here, but I I do know that you know like I say the the real challenges and and I've. My my PhD and my master's degree, I've focused a lot on religious studies issues. So I've, you know, and then I I spent a lot of time studying Mormonism. And, and so I've dealt with a lot of the real troubling problems within Mormonism. But I think the real bleak parts of my life, the, the places where I've felt the, the most pain and distance from God have not been a result of that kind of questioning so much is just my emotional state of, of depression. Interesting. Thank you. And thank you for the public work you've done. I was aware of that essay, and that's why I wanted to at least spend a few minutes here, and I, I know that you'd be willing to engage people as as they write in on the blog or, or whatever uh, in response to this. So, so thanks for going there, and, and feel free to keep reflecting on it. Let me alert listeners to the current issue of Sunstone, and it has a piece by Boyd in there about, and it's just a wonderful piece, and you've actually touched on some of it. It's called Arriving Where I Started, Disassembling and Reassembling a Testimony. And you begin with the story there on your mission of the missionary companion turning to you and nodding like it's your turn to testify, and you, and you kind of tell that story. But then you, you take us through really some wonderful steps of coming 
full circle to where you're able to now bear your testimony, but to have it mean something, you know, you'll use the standard language, but it means some, something in such depth. So I don't know how much you want to do it, but I I really want us to start moving into that area of, you know, how do you handle the troubling questions? How do you, how do you relate to an imperfect church and, and all those different things that I know that listeners to this and a lot of these podcasts are interested in. So do you mind, taking us through through that and i will link to this i know that stephen carter the editor of sunstone has has made this available for now so i don't know uh as soon as we release this you may have to act quickly folks to click on that link otherwise you'll have to buy the whole issue of the magazine but uh, but boyd give take us take us through just sort of your your journey in terms of deconstructing what does church mean what does (laughs) no mean and all that stuff well, I, as I talk about in that essay, I think, you know, the, we, we have, Terrell Givens talks about this rhetoric of surety that we have in, in Mormonism where we get up and testify, I know the church is true. And I, I remember as a young person, like I say, I had a deep connection with Mormonism. I felt these deep spiritual experiences. But I remember as a teenager the awkwardness of some of those testimony meetings where you felt like you were supposed to bear your testimony, but I couldn't. And they were really kind of painful because I really didn't want to lie, but I couldn't say, I know. You know, I I really didn't feel comfortable with that when I was young. And part of the reason for that was that I grew up in a church that I knew was flawed. I mean, I knew my parents were wonderful, wonderful people who drank coffee. And so, so on the one hand, I knew they were wonderful, and yet I felt, and and yet I felt shame for them in church. But I also felt, uh, and I saw around me at church some very imperfect people that I also loved, and and who sometimes I felt like were, you know, po- poking at me and my family because we were you know, less than perfect. And again, it probably was my imagination, but I was extremely sensitive about that. And so the idea of the church, you know, what what is the church? That always bothered me from a very early period. I, I felt a closeness to God, but I didn't really understand this idea of church. And so I, I couldn't say I know the church is true early on. But after seminary, I kind of got my hands around that, my head around that idea of, you know, the church. I, I could say, I know the church is true, but I, I kind of was one of those people that Eugene England talks about in a, and I know the church is as true as the gospel, um, where he talks about how people say the church, the, the gospel's true, but the church isn't. Um, right. So I'd kind of put scare quotes around church and, and think of, you know, I know that the gospel is true. And that's what I really meant when I said it. And so I had a pretty, I I was able to say with pretty good confidence by the time I was in seminary and certainly on my mission after that first few months that I knew the church was true. I I think, uh, you know, the the issue with depression, it caused me fairly early on to have some concerns about the the concept of I, you know. Well, just just one second. Uh, I I thought there was something in your piece that you that you haven't said something about the church. Once you got started in history, you started saying, "Okay, the church." Are we talking the 19th century church, the 20th yeah. century church? And and it was like church also became a moving target in terms of what Mormonism are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, no, especially when I was at BYU, I we didn't have the internet in those days, but I became part of a kind of underground of document trading, photocopy <laughs> document trading, 
um, I worked at a used bookstore here in Provo, and uh, it was kind of the ground zero of Mormon underground and and uh, you know strange Mormon things, you know. And so I, I get I got a great education from being in this bookstore about Mormonism, and I I encountered you know very different nineteenth century ideas about God. Um, I read Juanita Brooks, discovered you know Mountain Meadows Massacre. Um, I was still taking lots of religion classes at BYU, but, you know, the, the notion of church, you know, which church in, in terms of historically, you know, are we talking about the church that was teaching Adam God? Or are we talking about the, the church that said that we don't teach Adam God? Or what, right. which church are we talking about? So, yeah, especially during my college years, that issue of, uh, you know, what, what church are we talking about became very difficult to, to deal with. Thanks for thanks for adding that part in there. Yeah. Now, just to let you know, just before you move on, uh, what what's happening here is Boyd's gonna like. I know the church is true. He yeah. he's basically his essay talks about how he deconstructed each of those words: <laughs> the much. I, the no, <laughs> church, and true. So 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 just a just a little framing as maybe you reflect here. Well, and then you know, like I say, depression caused me to start to have questions about what I am, because I, I realized, you know, that chemicals seem to be causing my brain to do things that, you know, I, I think I know who I am, and yet I really, you know, can be so different if I'm on an antidepressant. And then I took a class in college um, in my master's degree on the subject. Um, it was a literary theory class, but we spent the whole semester reading psychology and, you know, all, all kinds of philosophy and, and things. And, and uh, I realized that, you know, I mean, that caused me a world of hurt in trying to define what the subject is. And, and so the, the, the notion of, you know, I, I couldn't say I know I. <laughs> and then and during my Ph.D. work, I, I read quite a bit of Nietzsche and his essay on truth and lie in an extra moral sense really hit me because he, he talks about how, first off, we don't even know what's going on in our own bodies. You know, our heart can be doing something and, and we, we aren't even aware of it. So much of our processes that are going on within us are involuntary. And the, the whole concept of perceiving things, you know, we, uh, he, he talks, he calls it a metaphorical relationship between an object and, and uh, you know, being able to see it and then classifying it. And so the whole concept of knowing became problematic to me. And, and so, you know, I, by the time I was done with that, I, I had a really difficult time saying, in any sense, I know the church is true. <laughs> the only word there that really hadn't been deconstructed was the is. And that, that's a pretty small word in that phrase. <laughs> and so I, for a long time, I, I just couldn't say that. Now I, I was still going to church, and I still had a temple recommend. I, you know, when I when I was asked questions uh, in a temple recommend interview, I, you know, I, I don't know. Somehow I managed to deal with those, but they they don't seem quite as temple recommend questions don't seem quite as strong as being able to say I know the church is true. So I, I you know, I kept going. I was still faithful and you know going to meetings and things like that, but. 
But for a long time, once you know, testimony meeting came, I just had a really hard time, and I, I found myself starting to judge people too, which I really disliked. You know, when people would get up and say, "I know the church is true," especially little children. You know, I was like, "How how can you say that? You don't know anything." <laughs> and so, I I found that really unpleasant to start noticing myself judging people for saying what they believed. And that, that caused me some pain, to, you know, when I started thinking about, me, you know, myself, when I started reflexively thinking about myself judging people, that, that didn't seem very pleasant. And so I, it occurred to me somewhere in there that, you know, I, if I applied that same notion to my relationship with my wife, I couldn't ever say, I love you, because, I mean, Zina is somebody that has changed remarkably from when I first met her. I mean, we were just young kids. She was, you know, 20, I was 22, and we were just kids. And and now we're, you know, almost 30 years later, we both changed significantly in that time. And and there were things that, you know, Zaina revealed to me consciously, but probably something she didn't consciously, things that she kept back, some things that you know, she just was unconscious of probably, but, you know, I, I never felt the sense that she had, had deceived me or anything because she was not the same person. And I couldn't say I love her in that sense because what? how could I know her? I mean, so so if I applied the same rules to my relationship with Zina that I had, I had been applying to my testimony, it would have been a really, really problematic thing because I... I mean, our relationship would have taken a nosedive. <laughs> so uh, in terms of thinking about my testimony, I started thinking about this notion of a relationship. And I had done some reading, things like James Fowler, who he talks about state in his book, Stages of Faith, he talks about how faith is a relationship, that you don't just have faith, you have faith in something or somebody. And, you know, that, that caused me to think about, again, my relationship with my wife. You know, I... I mean, my relationship with the gospel and with the church in some ways is very similar to that relationship. My wife has changed. The church has changed. I have changed. You know, I have faith in her. And the word faith is tied to the word fidelity. And, and you know, so a faithful relationship, we think about that. And so I started thinking about this notion of, of faith being a relationship, and that, that made me rethink this issue of knowing the church is true. And I think one of the big turning points for me was at a conference I attended in California a few years ago. Uh, Jim Faulkner gave a talk where he talked about how testimony meeting really isn't about knowing something. It's a, it's a kind of speech act. It's a, it's a ritual that we, we go through, a, a, a kind of ritual commitment where in society we... We say we know this, but really what we're saying is that we're committed to this, that we're committed to the congregation, to the, to the, to the organization, to the group. And, you know, the, the, these relationships are really more important than, you know, this act of knowing. And that really changed my mind about this, um, this idea of faith. And so, you know, I've come back to this I feel in some ways like I've come back home. You know, I feel very much at ease now saying, I know the church is true. But, you know, it doesn't mean the same thing it did when I was a 19th right. missionary. 
but I don't feel this need either to, you know, go through a whole background about what I really mean uh, when I'm in, in church meetings. I, I, I feel very comfortable in my skin that, uh, you know, it's really uh, about me being committed to God and to a people. And, and part of my relationship that, with Mormonism is, is really about love. I, I love the people and I, I love the ideas of Mormonism. I, I think one of the things that really captured my imagination in seminary when, when I was just a kid was the expansive vision of Mormonism. Uh, mm-hmm. Just how big it is and, and the potential for human, you know, for human growth and, and uh, it just is, is unlimited. And, and so that vision just really, uh, I find very persuasive and exciting. And so I get very motivated by that. So when you're hearing a very narrow vision or only a slice of the pie at church, how do you, how do you handle that? How are you like fighting in your own heart against somebody who hasn't caught this big view? You know, for, for a long time, I, I took books to church, you know. That was <laughs> there you go. State, um, which is even easier now because you can put them on a Kindle and look right. like scriptures or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I try to... Annie Dillard, uh, in her book, uh, Pilgrim from Tinker Creek, she talks about different ways of seeing. And that had an impact on the way I attend church because she talks about kind of a deliberate look, you know, seeing of, of a vision where you're purposefully focusing on something and looking for something. Mm. And then she talks about when you're in nature, there's another type of vision where you are just open and you're not so much focused in on trying to see anything in particular, but you're open to a broader view. And so this has really actually helped me in church because when I go to church, sometimes I can focus in on something somebody is saying and it's really meaningful and I find it really insightful and I can focus in on it. But a lot of times when I'm at church, I'm not getting that. So I try to look like Annie Dillard suggests we look in nature and just take this broader view. And sometimes when I do that, I, you know, I, I'm not influenced so much by what people are saying, but sometimes by uh, the actions, even of a little child in church or, you know, I just, I just try to take in the larger experience. Uh, I don't know if this makes any sense. No, no, it's great. And it, that, that's really helped me a great deal because I, 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 I think one of the things I've found is that Anne Lamott talks about how forgiveness is really about you, not them. Um, when you forgive somebody, it's really freeing you, not them. Um, she, she has this wonderful metaphor where she says to, to hate somebody is kind of like taking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Right. And uh, I think the same thing about judging people. You know, when you're when you're hating people or judging people, it's it's really not hurting them, but it's hurting you. And I really have gotten to a point in my life where I just I don't like that in my life. I don't like looking at other people and judging them and hating them or you know any of those negative feelings. And so I, I just try to be open. And ultimately, you know, I live a lot of my life in my head. But I find that, you know, I'm, I'm 
one of the few in my ward who does, but I don't think my faith is challenged any more or less than a lot of people who aren't. I mean, I've known people who have lost children, people who've had, you know, children who've left the church, and that's been a real trial for them. You know, the death of a loved one, things like this can be really huge challenges in, in, in life. And if depression can cause me so much grief in, in, in my faith journey, I, I can't assume that, you know, other people aren't having their faith challenged just because they're not living their lives in their head like I am. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, the the word truth is, is such a big thing in Mormonism. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and there will be so many people that will say, but if it isn't true, if, the, if these prophets don't really in some special way have access to what the universe is really like, what God is really like, what, what it is that is our true purpose in life, then why should I put up with all the craziness of community and, and things like that? How do you, where does the truth about facts, correspondence theory of truth type stuff, where does that fit to you in the kind of the hierarchy of, of, uh, <laughs> of things that, that you concentrate on when you think of your Mormon life? You know, I, I, I'm kind of weird this way, so I, I don't think this is necessarily a model a lot of people can go with. Okay. But, but I, I'm a literature person. I mean, I, I love literature. And so, you know, at some level, literary characters are true for me, even if they're fiction. You know, Holden Caulfield is just as real as, you know, my wife in some ways, in my head anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So. So the concept of truth doesn't bother me very much. I I like that passage in the scriptures where it talks about how I think it's Paul who says we 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 see through a glass darkly, and I I think you know I I just don't worry too much about truth, but I do have this feeling of I don't know. G- Joseph Smith once said that the gospel tastes good. Right. And I, I, I love that metaphor. I don't really know what he meant, but I, that works for me because things about the gospel just taste good to me. You know, when I think about the Mormon concept of God, it just tastes good. And, and so, you know, again, I, I, I'm sure that's not going to work for everybody. But for me, I just don't really spend a lot of my life worrying about truth and, you know, trying to find, I mean, Moses is a real character for me, whether there was a Red Sea or not. Right, right. right. Or however the description that we get in the scriptures is, you know, caricature or, or stylized presentation to make a certain point. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, again, part of my trouble came when I, I think one of the most faith challenging things in my graduate school was when I was at the University of Maryland, I took a class on, on reading the Bible as literature. And reading the Old Testament as literature was pretty easy. When I started reading the New Testament as literature, that got, a, got to be really difficult. <laughs> that, that really challenged me initially because reading Jesus as a character, you know, the historical Jesus had been so important to me that all of a sudden I was reading him as a character. That was a really difficult thing. And when I started realizing that there were different accounts of Jesus, you know, that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John aren't all the same. Right. 
the, the, the birth narratives are so different and factually different, yeah. yeah actually different and, and, and they can't all be true, right? I mean so so was there a real Jesus even though the infancy narratives are so different? Exactly. I but but you know, do I do I spend a lot of time worrying about that? I just really don't. Now, now you were a lit person, I guess, at a, a fairly early age. Would you say it? Because here's one of the things I always try to talk is, the longer you live life, and the, you know, we're both middle age or a little yeah. old, um, we, you know, we've been in middle, we've been middle age for a while. <laughs> yes, we never know when we're middle aged until after we're dead. Right? <laughs> that's true. That's true. But but you know, we're 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 in our fifties, early fifties, yeah. you and me, and and. It, to me, the truth piece sort of just gradually became less and less important, and the the general sensibility about the universe, the the things that the stories point to, even if I can't name them, even if I can't you know wrap them up in a neat ball, all that stuff sort of left me. Do you think it's partly just aging and and that kind of stuff too? And just yeah, maybe so. I I don't know. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, you know, I I guess that's part of it. I think. Two, as I've gotten older, I value community more. The, the word religion, you know, etymologically, as I understand it, I guess there's some debate here, but it comes from the same root as ligament. Right. And, and so it's, it's really a binding together. And I, I think that's really important to me. And, and one of the things I value about my Mormon community is that it forces me to confront people who are really different from me. Right. And it gives me the opportunity to be the different person for other people. You know, I I'm really close friends with people who listen to John to to, to Glenn Beck. You know, <laughs> and, and I'm not I'm the kind of person who listens to John Stewart, and they right. have to go with that. You know, but but I find that that's really useful, and especially in an age where the internet has made it in some ways where we can you know. S- separate ourselves off and create these little communities of people who believe exactly the same thing we believe. We, you know, we get our news from places that have already processed things for us, you know, whether it's Fox News or HuffPost, you know, we've kind of already processed our news right. for little echo chambers. And uh, the church allows us, I mean, it forces us to encounter people who are so different from us. And I think that's really good for us uh, as a, at a very pragmatic level. I, I know in many ways it's forced me to moderate my beliefs, and it's, it's given me the ability to work with people that are different from me, you know, across the spectrum. So, so I think that's a really valuable thing about the truth. Good stuff, my friend. What else is there to, to talk about, or should we start drawing this to a close? Is there a few keys, or if you were, to, if you were, you know, well, you don't have to imagine. This audience is, uh, I would say, mostly engaged Latter-day Saints, but yeah. sometimes wondering just, uh, you know, are there, are there framings or whatever that in times of difficulty you turn to, or just ways of phrasing, you know, how do you handle the humanness and still remember the, the divinity that's also present? Uh, anything else along those lines as we head out? Well, I guess, I guess the one thing that I, I think is important is that, you know, we are a community that talks about truth and, you know, we say, I know the church is true. And I think we've got a fear of doubt. And I think that's unfortunate because I think doubt is a very important part of faith. I mean, faith isn't knowledge. It's, it's something in between. If we have knowledge, you certainly don't need faith. 
faith is something that's in between the two, you know, knowledge and complete disbelief. And, and doubt is going to be part of the process. And, and I don't think we should be afraid of it. I don't think we should necessarily, you know, embrace it, you know, and just become this person who's, you know, as fond of our doubts as other people are embracing their, their individual truths. Um, but it's so fun to tear things apart, Boyd. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> I can get modes too, where I can deconstruct everything. And there's a power to it, and it's addictive. There is. But I think doubt is, is very useful as a tool. But I think part of the power of doubt is that it allows you to to move on to a new stage of faith, as, as James Fowler James mm-hmm. talked about. Um, you know, jo- Joseph Smith wouldn't have gone to the woods if he hadn't had any doubts. So... You know, our church was founded uh, by a doubter, um, and his family was certainly doubters. I mean, his father, you know, came from a family of of, uh, of people who were very profoundly doubting a lot of things. And so, you know, so I think I think doubt is a very useful tool. But don't forget to eventually doubt your doubts and at least yeah, exactly. open up. That's really the point, is doubting your doubts as well as doubting your truths. You know, it's... A friend of mine gave me a wonderful little wall plaque once, uh, just a little kind of bowling trophy kind of plaque, you know, that you can hang on your wall. He put a Brigham Young quote on it uh, that I thought was was really funny, and I've kind of kept it by my bookcase. It says, think, brethren, think, but do not think so far you can't think back again. (laughs) Nice. And I think that's a really useful idea of, you know, thinking back again. You know, the journey is, is about, I think we should be thinking of it in kind of, a, kind of like a quest. You know, we, we should be trying to find some truth out there, some greater purpose, some, some noble vision. And, and doubt is part of the process of moving you toward that. But, you know, especially coming from me, somebody who's really good at being depressed and being stoic, I think it's really important to have a, a kind of positive sense that, that there is something that is magical, that's beautiful, that, that can, can move you toward the, to, toward the divine. And, and part of that comes from community. You know, I think being in a community allows you to see the face of God in other people. Absolutely. Well, Boyd, any other any other things that come spring into mind before we leave? Well, there probably will be after we hang up. But <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Boyd, without using the term, you know, Barry Tesmer or something like that, what what would be uh, a typical, you know, set of affirmations that you might say publicly in church today? What would what would be the types of stuff that you would focus on? You know, like I say, I, I'm just really deeply moved by the vision of Mormonism. I I find such great hope. Uh, in human potentiality, that you know that, that we are in a, in a, in essence gods in embryo. That that concept, whatever it means, I really like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's such a very positive view of the world, and as somebody who's prone to depression, I need that in my life. I, I really need that kind of perspective that that I'm worthwhile. You know that the, that life has purpose. And I find that in the gospel, you know, it's supposed to be good news, and so I I, I look to that, and I I think you know there's there's good news there. I have to say, you know, when I rationally think about atonement, I don't get it. You know, I I, I have grappled with the idea of a, of a, a savior of Christ, 
and I, I don't understand it. But again, going back to C.S. Lewis, I, I, I just kind of do the same thing he does. I am a Christian, so I believe in Christ. And I give myself over to that. I, I just, at some level, I, I just say, I need that in my life. And whatever it's doing for me, that, that atonement, that purpose, that, you know, Christ's redemption, I need that. And I, I'm grateful for it. And I, I can't say I understand it at all. And, you know, that's the downside of the life of the mind is you mm-hmm. thinking too much, right? <laughs> but uh, so, so the more I read, the less I understand. But th- those ideas of, of redemption are very powerful, and they resonate with my soul. Wonderful. Thank you for being so generous with us to spend. Boy, I bet we're 90-plus minutes uh, <laughs> final product by the time this. We had a few stops and starts along the way, but, boy... Thank you, our listeners. Thank you. Please, are you willing to come to the blog and engage anybody that might have questions yeah. for you? Sure, Super. Uh, listeners, Boyd has been a friend of mine for well more than 10 years, and I can tell you he is he's what you met today. He In, in life, in stress, and everything like that, this is, <laughs> this is a man that I love and who just, uh, I just... I just love that, the way the world feels you know, in terms of, you know, yeah, you don't know, no, no, with your head, 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 but, but you, but you, but, but this, this metaphor of talking about engaging the church the way you have with your relationship and, and new discoveries and evolving and never feeling like a betrayal when you, when you learn something new or you have a new angle, these are just powerful metaphors. And I'm so glad that you wrote the article that you did and, and people can, can read that. Well, thanks, Dan. I, I really appreciate your vision, too. It's, it's, it's wonderful that you've got such a... Uh, I, I just see in you such a wonderful uh, ability to build bridges, and that's, uh, that's the kind of thing Gene England was good at, too. So that's, that's what we need more of in Mormonism. Well, let's, everybody who's listening, you can be part of this. Build. <laughs> there's, just, there's just good there, and the truth piece takes care of itself as you as you just live and and trust and and just kind of uh, engage life i think it takes care of itself but don't don't let your head talk you out of having experiences with people like you said boyd seeing the face of the divine in others that's that's just the most remarkable thing when there's a shift yeah. And, and I know that I know that my engagement with Mormonism makes that happen far more often than it would otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Well, listeners, thanks very much for your support of a Thoughtful Faith podcast. We hope that you'll keep your subscriptions going at this time of transition with different hosts that will be coming on and things like that. The podcast is, is an important part of the Open Stories Foundation and its overall mission. And I will come back and interview other people. John DeLynn's going to be doing some. I know Natasha Helfer-Parker is going to be doing it. If you have a friend or somebody that you would like to suggest that uh, become a subject for this, please recommend, even recommend yourself as, a, as an interviewee. We are, we're looking just to have these good experiences with super thoughtful folks. Did you just notice I said super thoughtful? That is a John DeLynn phrase. <laughs> to use the word super. But, but with thoughtful folks who, uh, who've, you know, 
been around enough to, to gain some perspective, you know, somewhere along the, the second half of, of things beginning to come in focus at least, rather than the chaos of, uh, oh, I don't know which way is up anymore. So I hope that this podcast serves that kind of purpose, and, and we wish you all good night. Boyd, thanks again. Hey, thank you. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you, see you for